0: Hi, uh, welcome to the New Voting Project. My name is Kunal, still your host, you know, just like government is bureaucratic, so is the host of this show. Things just don't change around here. Um, And today we're here with Zachary Kimmel, um, a former student at Columbia University, the Founder and Director of Outreach at Columbia Votes. Um, You've also been a Field Campaign Fellow for Let America Vote. Uh, You've worked for the ACLU's National Political Advocacy Department, um, and you're now Legal Assistant for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights um, in Washington DC. So thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the show. We do appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Of course, of course. All right, so let's get into these questions. Um, Starting off for our viewers, um, talk a little bit about your background, you know, what introduced you to politics, and touch on how, since you're a recent graduate, uh, Columbia kind of prepared you to take on the roles you have and aspire to take on.
1: Absolutely. Again, thanks so much for having me on. It's really exciting to, to be here. Um, so my name is, is Zach. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and recently graduated from uh, from Columbia. I think for me, some of my, my earliest kind of uh, political inclinations were sort of moves towards social justice, civil rights, uh, advocacy, um, I really think are, are rooted in large part for me um, in, in my Jewish identity. I grew up in, in, a, in a Jewish home, not religious in any sense of the word. I never went to uh you know religious services. I didn't go to Hebrew school. Um, but still for for me and my parents growing up, Jewishness was a very, very real kind of historical, political, cultural force. Um, in our lives. And above all, uh, it was really sort of an, an ethical code, a sort of a, a, a sort of a set of responsibilities uh, to pursue justice and do do good in the world. That's sort of the history of, of anti-Semitism, of, of marginalization, the memory of the Holocaust really created uh, a responsibility to, to do justice uh, in the world. So, you know, all of our, all of our religious holidays, our satyrs, all of our all of our Jewish uh, life growing up was really sort of political and deeply. Uh, deeply ethical, that never again carried with it a real responsibility to do justice wherever you are and and however you can. And I think for me, I found a lot of resonance growing up uh, in the range of Jewish Americans who got involved in the civil rights movement or got involved in in left-leaning politics uh, more broadly. You know, if you think about the Loving versus Virginia decision that made uh, interracial marriage uh, legal, um, almost the entire legal team uh, were Jews or Samuel Leibowitz who represented the Scottsboro Boys in Alabama or Andrew Goodman, who I have sort of framed behind me, was one of three civil rights workers, um, Jewish New Yorker, um, who went down to Mississippi in 1964 and was murdered by the Klan trying to register African Americans to vote. So there is a a really deep, long history of of Jewish Americans who got involved in the struggle for racial justice and civil rights uh, because they understood uh, that sort of the history of anti-Semitism of our own communal experience mandated that that we get involved and we have to, we cannot be on the sidelines, we have to pursue justice wherever we are and, and however, uh, we can. And I think coming to a school, uh, um, I was really encouraged and pushed to get involved uh, politically. But I think for me, being at a school uh, that is as political as as sort of activist as as Columbia, um, it was interesting to me to notice uh, how few of my, my peers uh, were regularly voting uh, in local, state, federal elections, that there was this political climate at Columbia, um, but very often didn't really translate into getting students out uh, to, the, to the voting booth. And so I think that, that sort of recognition for me was one of the early drivers towards, towards my work uh, at Columbia votes. I'm happy to speak more about. It. I know that will come up uh, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but really the sort of, but really the sort of the, the idea of, of, a, of a school like Columbia being so politically checked in and so and so kind of committed to a range of, of social and political values that really matter to me. Um, but often actual act of voting, sort of the act of democratic engagement, democratic participation, um kind of often often falling through the cracks. I think really inspired me to to get involved in the work uh, and the and the causes and the organizations that I ultimately did at school.
0: Yeah, no, that that makes. I, I commend you. I mean, most folks don't don't understand you know the mantle that they bear for public service. so so mm. thank you um, for for doing that. Um, but I guess you kind of answered my next question. Which was, you know, why enter politics? What specifically? What? Why focus on law? You obviously, you know, what we talked about you're aspiring to be a lawyer. You're um, sure. working for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Um, why? Why take the legal avenue? You know, beyond just advocacy and and policy and legislating. Why? Why? Spe- why specifically focus on on law?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a really good question. It's actually one that I'm sort of still kind of wrestling with. Uh, myself, I think I've always been kind of torn between pursuing sort of the legal route, you know, the civil rights lawyer ideal um, versus maybe, you know, going to get a public policy degree and sort of trying to work um, kind of on, on the front end, um, uh, the front end of, of the causes and the political advocacy that I, that I really care about. And I think for me, you know, one of the clearest answers to sort of why law, why litigation, why be a lawyer um, Actually, came pretty early on in my in my political journey. In my first college summer, I went down to Georgia to work for Let America Vote, as you mentioned uh, at the top. And while there, I was primarily knocking on doors for Stacey Abrams and other state and local candidates uh, who were committed to voting rights in some in some capacity. And uh, Stacey, and-
0: if you're watching this, feel free to come on the show after Zach.
1: Yes, Stacey, <laughs> if if you are watching this, uh, you know I think I think definitely would be a great great person to to interview. Um, yeah, so so working primarily for, for her, primarily knocking on doors. I mean really, uh, I knocked on about two thousand doors for her and for other state and local candidates that summer, um, and I didn't have a car, so I was kind of all on all on foot that summer. so it was you know in, in the Georgia heat, it was a it was a tough um, summer, and I, I remember very vividly, maybe midway through the summer, um, there began sort of a, a new series of news reports about a plan in Randolph County in Southwest Georgia, very rural, um, very poor majority black county. Um, and officials there had considered closing seven of nine polling places in the county. Uh, it, that basically would have meant, you know, the county, nobody in the county, again, majority poor, majority rural, majority black county, uh, could participate in, in the election. A clear attempt uh, at, at voter suppression to try to subvert and dilute the power of, of the county in the election. And almost immediately, every single civil rights organization that I could think of. The NAACP, the ACLU, the Campaign Legal Center, the Lawyers Committee—basically, the you know the, the Avengers of civil rights—all came down. <laughs> I like
0: that. The Avengers. Right? It, really, like... you
1: know, it really was sort of a, the Avengers assemble of voting rights. Everybody came down to Georgia uh, and basically, you know, told the county officials: if you pursue with if you proceed with this plan, we will we will sue you, uh, and, and you will lose. And it is very clear that that we will we will take you to court. We will litigate this, and we and we will win. Uh, and eventually they dropped the plant and the can those polling places in Randolph County remained open. Uh, and that to me was a real kind of inspiring moment of not only the power of legal advocacy, the power of litigation, but merely the threat of litigation. You know, they actually never even filed a lawsuit, but simply the threat of the power of the law, the power of uh, litigation to actually protect and preserve and safeguard sort of fundamental civil and democratic rights. Uh, that was a really inspiring moment for me, um, I think really catalyzed sort of the, the push towards law school, the push towards litigation, um, and something that really sticks with me, that, that, that you know, you can, you can definitely work to pass good laws on the front end, uh, but you also definitely need committed people who are fighting those bad laws on the back end.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I actually work with a lot of civil rights lawyers Um, including some from the ACLU here in the Bay area. So trust me, I, you know, the legal, the legal perspective is, is quite valuable. um, Absolutely. Actually, you know, tangibly trying to accomplish a goal. Um, But let's talk about your work with Columbia votes. You know, the idea is give me that student, you know, activist perspective. Why did you pursue, why did you found Columbia votes? You know, what did the organization ultimately do under your leadership um, and, and what are the core values and, and objectives that, that Columbia Votes is trying to, or was trying to accomplish, did so, and, and the future, you know, uh, pathway?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so as I, I think the, the real core, the kind of catalyst for this um, was that summer in Georgia. When I came back to school in the fall as a sophomore, I had had this really energizing, all-consuming, you know, civil rights, voting rights, politics, uh, summer, and I, and I really dove in with both feet. I got involved in every single democracy voting rights organization that I could find at Columbia. And At a point in time, I think I was in you know four or five different clubs, all with similar kind of democratic voting rights, get students voting goals. But quickly, early on in the fall of sophomore year, I noticed that there wasn't really any infrastructure linking any of these organizations together. They all shared very similar goals, but the leaders really weren't communicating with one another. Resources were kind of being spent uh, redundantly. And, then, and even though the ecosystem of democratic clubs and organizations was really crowded, the really kind of nitty gritty work of registering students to vote was often falling through the cracks. Um, so in that, noticing that this was unsustainable, that we were missing a really incredible opportunity to register students to vote and get students turned out, um, I brought all the leaders together of those various organizations To form what I I originally called it the Columbia Coalition for Democracy, but then I I shifted the name to Columbia Votes, it's a lot cleaner, you know, Coalition for Democracy is a little clunky. I'm happy with the name. It's
0: It's a little Columbia Votes
1: is is much cleaner, Uh, but that was sort of the idea of Columbia Votes, to be the unified, centralized body of voting rights, democratic advocacy um, at at the student, uh, at the student, at undergrad level. After, you know, two and a half years, we're going we're going on our, our third birthday in, in the fall, fall of 2021. Um, we, you know, we've registered several thousand undergraduates to vote. We used to do in-person voter registration drives all across campus. We then had to shift uh, to sort of online organizing during, during obviously during the pandemic and the virtual school year. Um, I did a lot of outreach with our student athletes. I would kind of go team to team, uh, registering our student athletes to make sure that they were all registered to vote. And we had sort of, club specific outreach across the university to uh, you know, musical ensembles, race and uh, affinity-based organizations, all of these different sort of pockets of, of campus to make sure everybody had the resources that they needed to register to vote uh, and participate. I was involved in creating a uh, organization sort of at the administrative level of Columbia um, called CU Engage, which was the university-wide civic engagement committee designed to sort of coordinate efforts across the university we were able to develop really incredible collaborative partnerships with a very variety of our graduate schools and professional schools, like our law school, public affairs, public health, uh, our medical school, uh, all of these very social work school, journalism school, all trying to build up their democracy, their registration efforts. Uh, and then one of the things I'm, I'm proudest of, um, and, and you know, you mentioned, you, you worked with one of, my, one of my good friends through this, um, was developing the Ivy League Votes Challenge. Our, our eight Ivy League institutions, Um, often compete academically or athletically, uh, but the the premise of the Ivy League Votes Challenge was actually to get these schools competing democratically. So the Ivy League Votes Challenge was a a nonpartisan, all in good fun civic engagement competition featuring all eight Ivy League schools um, that took place uh, in the the fall of of 2020. And I think for me, what has been sort of the the driving ideas or sort of driving uh, impulses behind Columbia Votes' work, I think are, are twofold. One is to get students, particularly Columbia students, more checked in to local and state politics. Something that I noticed at Columbia was that it was very easy for students, even politically minded students, politically checked in students, to come through the gates of Columbia, spend four years within its gates, and then move on without ever really taking much of a political stake in the trajectory of upper Manhattan, of Harlem, of of New York City more broadly. Uh, and that was something that, that really bothered me. If we were going to be sort of effective, responsible citizens and stewards of, of the city, of our community, uh, it's important that we that we vote and get involved and get checked in here where, where we live um, at school. We were, we were, we were, we worked with students and we registered students to vote sort of wherever they, wherever they they wanted. If they wanted to register to vote at their home address outside of New York, we were happy to do that. But it was sort of a, a, an idea of ours that we would encourage students to register to vote here in New York City, here in New York, uh, to get them checked in, to get them voting in local political elections in primaries. Uh, because I think that, that, sort of, that being politically rooted in the community where Columbia uh, exists um, was something that was really, really important uh, to me. The other thing that I think is really critical about Columbia Votes and other organizations like it um, is that college comes at a really interesting time for people politically. Right when you go off to college, you're, you're to sort of. De- you're developing your political ideas, you're developing sort of how you see the world, how you interact with the world um, politically. Um, and often you turn 18 or you turn sort of of voting age, right as you go off uh, to college. And sometimes you could have an election in the fall, you know, a month after you get onto campus. Uh, so it's a really critical time to get to capture students and capture that political energy and turn it into um, actual participation. What we know from, from our research and from, from sort of national research, is that voting really tends to be habitual. So if you get in the habit of voting early and, and, and sort of in every election, even local down ballot elections, you're more likely to vote uh, later on. Um, and you know most, most of that sort of habitual voting comes from one's home community, one's family. If you grow up in a household where voting is very common, if you grow up in a neighborhood where voting is very common, you're more likely to go out and vote um, yourself. So at this critical time, when students are turning 18, are turning political, are eligible to vote, they're severed from their home communities. They're severed from their families. They're not connected to their home communities anymore. So it's really, really important to capture students, especially incoming first years, and get them voting because it is that habitual thing that if we can get you voting that first time, that first election, you're more likely to vote uh, in future elections down the line. So the idea that really resonates with me uh, is the idea of being a Columbia voter. Sort of, I am a Columbia voter wherever I go. Even if uh, even if I, I never vote in New York City again, even if I spend four years here and never come back to New York, we want to be the organization that got you in the habit of thinking about registration, thinking about deadlines, thinking about all local primaries and upcoming elections, getting you in the habit of thinking politically, of thinking civically, um, so that you can be that active, engaged citizen even after you pass out of the gates of Columbia uh, and go off into the world. Wherever you find yourself, you can be that engaged, engaged political citizen. That idea of being a Columbia voter wherever you go. Um, is really something that resonated a lot uh, with me and sort of trying to get students um, voting habitually so that when they go off, uh, they have all the tools and resources they need to really be um, active and confident participants in our democracy.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, actually. Most voters um, who vote when they're 18 are more likely to be lifetime voters. Right, um, absolutely. You know, if they, so yeah, starting early is is always the motto, right? Yes. they, They teach us the alphabet in kindergarten so yeah that, that should that should be a bellwether or something exactly <laughs> uh, but let's let's kind of circle back let's take sure. a, let's take a historical turn um 2020 you know yep. um once in a century pandemic still yep. going uh unfortunately mm-hmm. um a, a, a huge national election. You know, forget down ballot. I was working in the down ballot. You know, county and municipal and state races. But you know, general election, federal races, the presidency. You know, what are your thoughts on what happened in the twenty twenty election? Um, you know, g- give me, give me your two cents.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's sort of hard to hard to even wrap one's head around what it was and what we saw. Um, especially when I feel like so much of how I think about the election in hindsight is sort of blurred with, uh, with January 6th and sort of the other sort of political events that really have been, um, you know, on, of, of national concern. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, off camera, there was, there was a bomb threat in D.C. today. Um, someone, you know, a, sort of a similar January 6th ideology so is still, still per, uh, permeating. Um, across the country, and so that it's it's challenging to even think about what what the takeaways um, are. I think for me, I think one of the things that is that I that I definitely still think about um, a lot, uh, and you you mentioned down ballot in your, in your question, um, is is how how often those races really get overlooked. Um, I think that you know obviously there was a huge focus on the presidential election, and for obvious reasons, uh, how important the presidency is. The stakes of the election. Who was running? I mean, it was obvious it was going to draw a lot of uh, airplay, uh, sort of a lot of airtime, a lot of a lot of the spotlight. But even if even as Democrats sort of got over the the hurdle uh, at the presidential level, you know things things didn't look so great. Down ballot, the Senate didn't go the way that many Democrats wanted it to go. State legislatures did not go the way many Democrats wanted them to go. There was almost this idea that so many resources and focus and sort of manpower was devoted to the presidential election to get a Democrat over the over the hurdle. Let's say uh, that sort of those other races kind of kind of fell through fell through the cracks. And I think that as we think sort of politically um, about one of the one of the critical things is how do we kind of maintain this level of enthusiasm and engagement uh, into off-year elections, into elections that are not as kind of sexy or have that kind of mass appeal as a presidential election uh, does. There was so much energy and so much enthusiasm and so much focus uh, pouring into the presidential election, especially among young people, among students. How do we build sort of a more robust infrastructure to carry on that, that, that focus, that enthusiasm, that interest uh, even when the election is, is not as sexy, when it's your, you know, your local school board uh, that's up, when it's a go- gubernatorial race in an off year, when it's a, when it's a state legislature race uh, in 2021. We just had local, um, local municipal elections in New York City for a new mayor, a new DA, an entirely new city council. And sort of one of the critical questions for Columbia Votes in thinking out of 2020 was how do we keep the same level of enthusiasm, same level of energy uh, as we saw for sort of the Biden-Trump showdown uh, these local elections which which don't get the kind of airplay don't get the kind of uh focus um that maybe maybe they should right so that that's definitely a a thought that that i am still working through and i don't really have a good answer for how do we maintain um that enthusiasm uh i think that is just something that has to be sort of front of mind how do we continue to channel um that enthusiasm not into sort of a one-off i voted in 2020 because obviously i had to um but into i am now a habitual voter i am now an engaged checked in political citizen uh that that's really something that that's been on uh my mind uh my mind quite a bit
0: All right yeah no most folks need to understand i think it's it's kind of a a gap in in um the knowledge of sure. how, how how political processes actually work And and it's not to say I blame, you know, the average voter, the average voter has no time, is most likely working a nine to five, getting minimum wage, and has a family to take care of and bills and expenses and a day to day operation, they're tired, um, etc. There's fatigue, right? There's fatigue, there's exhaustion. um, And then there's kind of ignorance that that builds up because of that. So, you know, folks, and any voter should understand that when we're talking about the policies that directly impact you, and I deal with this a lot, if that road isn't paved, it's not the presidency who's working on it. Trust me, no matter how many infrastructure bills he's passing, the city council. If we're talking about the d a the district attorney and and you're worried about you know incarcerating black and brown people across this the country, it's the district attorney, it's the sheriff's office. they're working together on it, you know, and it's the city or the county that's deciding the budget that's allocated um to to, to those auxiliaries of government. so you know, I think it's just a gap in understanding you know it's that politics more than than what most folks assume is happening to you because your local representatives 100%. Um, are working on it, you know, not even your congressmen uh, as much. It's, it's really your city council, your county, your DA, your state okay. legislators that are deciding what's happening to you, where you are. Um, yeah. And most of the time, federally, it's just funds. Mm-hmm. It, it's just appropriations that are helping um, business. So, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad most, you know, the, the new generation needs to understand that.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the best examples of this, I think, uh, that I, that I always try to sort of share and, and talk about whenever, whenever I have the opportunity to, um, is state judges. State Mm. judges, to me, are the sleeping giant in our political system. Mm. To me, and and to many people, you sort of hear state judges, you, you hear judges more broadly, and you think they're not political. Like they, they're the judiciary, the ideal, the judiciary is separate from uh, you know, sort of the political whims of a democratic populace. At the state level, and this is, this is something that I really dug into a lot during my internship at, at the ACLU actually, um, was across the country, in many states, state and local judges are democratically elected. Often, in, in many states, in partisan elections, you can run for the state Supreme Court in North Carolina or in Texas uh, as a Democrat or as a Republican, explicitly on the ballot. Uh, and you know, we often focus, when we, when we think about uh, sort of state, state state elections, we often think about governors and, and you know, state legislatures, uh, maybe an attorney general election, we hardly ever think about state judicial uh, elections. And then if we're in sort of thinking about judges and civil rights and you know, the constitutionality of things, um, often our mind goes to the Supreme Court, goes to sort of those nine people and you know, the, the Senate confirmation hearings can be very intense and very, very visible uh, and, and sort of garner a lot of enthusiasm. State courts hear 95% of all cases filed in the United States. And they are, they are sort of this, this sleeping giant. And people often overlook just how powerful um, they are. They have incredibly low turnout. Uh, many people don't even know where they are on the ballot. they're sort of at the end of the ballot. So there's a lot of examples out of a lot of research that's been done uh, about actual voter fatigue, voters voting uh, for for their governor, for the state legislature, and then just not filling out the rest of their ballot and leaving the state judge section empty. Uh, there's a lot of research about about that sort of voter fatigue. And so if you want to have a really direct impact uh, on the ground immediately in an election with high consequences, high stakes, uh, but, but sort of in high electoral efficacy, state judges are to me, are sort of the, the sleeping giant of our system. Get, you know, do your research about your state judges. Uh, Ballotpedia is a great resource. The Brennan Center has excellent state judges um, resources as well, the National, the National Center for State Courts, National Council for State Courts, one of the two, um, has also really important research about when their elections are. State judges to me are, are sort of one of those issues that um, I think wherever you align politically, um, they are going to impact the issues that you that you care about. And so few people turn out for these elections. So few people know who their judges are, even at the state Supreme Court level. Uh, and so to me, that that is really something I always try to bring up um, as an example of, you know, getting involved locally, getting involved um, where your vote can really, really swing uh, an election on on issues that you really care about on the causes that really motivate you to get you out to the polls in the first place.
0: Yeah, no, I've, you know, I personally, I've never even thought of state judges.
1: Yeah, see, and, and you're a politically checked in person, and like that, there you go. Uh,
0: you know why? Because I think the sleeping giant is actually the, the district attorney.
1: The, okay. So I, I, think, I think an argument about, about who the sleeping giants are is, is totally fair. Um, and, and also, you know, there are some states that, that don't elect their judges, to be, to be clear. Many, some states also do gubernatorial appointments, and so electing your governor is sort of vis-a-vis electing your judges. Uh, but many states have direct election of judges, and and those are if you will live in one of those states, find out how your state gets its judges. If you're watching this, find out how your city gets its judges, how your state gets its judges, uh, and and because you might you might have a vote on something that really really matters to you, um, from voting rights to criminal uh, criminal justice to reproductive rights to immigration to literally any issue you care about. Uh, these judges are really critical and really influential, uh, and you you could really you could really have have a pretty powerful say. Um, if, if your state is one of those that, that elects its judges directly.
0: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Now, my next question is very simple. And there's sure. really only one answer to it. Um, is voting important? Yes. That's a good answer. You know, most, you know some people take a lot, a lot longer Great. to answer. Easy, quick, automatic. <laughs> yes, good. Now, should, you know, I'm, I'm 17. Yep. I'll be able to vote in my first election next year. I'll be in the primaries and the general. Very exciting. i'm pre-registering so you don't need to worry about you know that
1: you beat me to it
0: exactly um should should 16 17 year olds i'm not sure if you know but you know school boards really decide education policy you know like i said municipal governments have an impact on day-to-day should 16 17 year olds be empowered um and have the right to vote be eligible to vote you know, at at a certain level or, you know, be able to vote in every single ballot issue or proposition or, you know, candidate, should they be able to vote for their school board, um, you know, representatives, Um, should young folks, because the idea is to get civically engaged, right? And like we've been talking about, starting early usually leads to the best outcomes. Yeah. So should 16, 17 year olds, should Gen Z, at least our generation have the right to vote?
1: I think my, my, and this is something that I haven't admittedly given a, a ton of thought to um, your, you know, your question really sort of has is, is been sprung a lot of thought for me. I think my answer is, is, is yes, I, I don't really see much uh, of of a harm uh, to it. I think that sort of the, the, the counter argument would be, well, they're not, they're not old enough, they're not mature enough. Um, I actually would argue, I think, I think Gen Z in, in stark distinction, you know, distinction from our previous, you know, generational elders um, are a lot more checked in and a lot more knowledgeable um, uh, than, than their previous generations politically, civically. Um, and even if you are not checked in politically yet, you know, the accessibility of the tools to get checked in, to get engaged, to get sort of conscious of these issues, um, I think is far more accessible to us sort of growing up in the internet age, growing up in the social media age. Um, and also I think having a really good sense of what looks fishy on the internet and what looks genuine on the internet um maybe better than our than our elders do, uh I think we I think we are in a really good position uh you know to get involved uh early. And like we said earlier, I really like the idea sort of as a as a sort of a civic uh, a civic prerogative, how do we create a a, a citizenry, a, a body politic um that is a regular, you know, habitual participant in democracy? How do we get as many people as possible voting as regularly as possible, as as, as frequently as they are eligible to do so? And the, all the research suggests starting them early. Starting, you know, starting that habitual thinking about voting, thinking about your deadlines, thinking about your community politically, thinking about sort of how elected officials at the state and local level impact you and your life and your family's life and the life of your school and the life of your uh, church or synagogue, the life of life of your community, um, your local community, your state community, your, your your national community. I think to me, it's a really good idea to get 16, 17-year-olds uh, at minimum pre-registered, but, but possibly you know, even, even voting uh, in, in any in all, any all elections um, to sort of create, you know, create the conditions whereby when they become, you know, after college into their adulthood, uh, they've been voting you know, through several election cycles already. They know the ins and outs of voting. This is not new to them. Uh, they can really engage and they know where to go for information. They know where to go for updates on elections. They are really an engaged uh, citizenry, and I think that is that should be at least I hope it should be you know our, our goal is to create the most engaged the most informed the most conscious uh, the most confident citizenry uh, that we can when it comes to to getting involved politically and civically And I think getting you know 16 seven year olds voting regularly is is a way is a way to do that I, I would support I would support that that kind of constitutional amendment that that sort of uh, legislative prerogative
0: Yeah, no, me as well I think. You know the one of the counter arguments I've actually heard is, um, you know, uh, young people should not be exposed to 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 the political spectrum that early. You know, the the really yeah. the the um, older argument is that you know they should enjoy, and then eighteen is a good age where there's a transition. And I, I see some merit to that, uh, but then I also ask if you never, you know, if we never give them a chance um, to at least study or at least at, at, the, at the bare minimum, give them the right to vote in their school board election, you know, folks that are literally making decisions on how, what they're taught, what the curriculum is, the goddamn textbooks they use, you know, then we'll never know. We'll, we'll, never, we'll never truly have a, an all-encompassing idea about if young people voting at 16, 17 is better for, for, for a healthy democracy.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. completely. I think, I think to that kind of argument, you know, so let's, let's protect, young people from sort of the rigors of politics uh, by preventing by them from voting, I actually think uh, what I would say is sort of twofold. One um, is that, that kind of argument suggests that, you know, 16 and 17 year old, they are totally happy, carefree years, like all is dandy. And then you turn 18, everything becomes miserable. Like everything, oh, you start paying taxes, you start voting, you could be, you could go serve in the military. Like everything becomes really dark and very scary. Uh, for one thing that's just not what turning 18 really feels like For turning 18 uh really feels kind of like okay like i'm stepping up to the plate uh politically i'm stepping up to the plate as as an adult in my community i'm going off to college in most cases not in, not in most cases but in some cases i'm going off to college um and there's still a lot of a lot of fun and sort of lightweight upbeat things that happen when you're 18 19 20. i mean those are still very fun years it's not all kind of doomsday uh, you know, the, the harsh realities of, of adulthood for, for many people. Uh, and I, I don't see any, any reason why we can't, you know, prepare younger people for, um, for the, you know, the seriousness of adulthood, the seriousness of, of political citizenry, the seriousness uh, of being involved um, earlier. And the other argument that I would, that I would say to that, that kind of counter argument um, is that it assumes that, you know, 16, 17 year olds are basically not paying attention. Uh, it's it's basically saying well we can protect 16 and 17 year olds from the horrors of politics um, that's a good thing I think they're already aware of it I think I think you can't shield 16 and 17 year olds especially young people who grew up um, you know in in the Trump in the Trump presidency in the Trump era uh, we're very checked in we're very aware of what's going on I think we are we are hyper aware more aware than our generational predecessors of what is going on politically how different policies affect the issues we care about. I was too young to vote in 2016. I remember-
0: uh, I was 12 in 2016.
1: Right, I, so I was 17. <laughs> uh, I was too young to vote in, in 2016. Yeah. I, had, I had friends who were, uh, who were eligible, um, but I, I remember feeling really sort of powerless, like the entire future of my young life or maybe my, my entire life really seemed to hinge on this election. Um, I had friends who were of the voting age who were really kind of cavalier with it. Well, my vote doesn't matter anyway. We're in New York City, like it doesn't matter. You know, the, the election result is, is sort of a foregone conclusion. I, I'm just going to write in the name of a candidate. I'm going to vote third party. Um, and, I, and I think that really just bothered me that this election that had an obvious consequence, obvious implications for my life uh, and for the life of my friends uh, of, of similar age, we couldn't participate in. And the idea that, you know, I somehow needed to be shielded from politics at 16, 17, that you need to be sort of protected from the real world of politics, I think it's kind of an infantilizing argument. One, you know, we are, we're ready, we, Gen Z is as ready as any generation before us to step up to the plate politically and be informed and be involved citizens. And B, it assumes that we're not already paying attention, that we're not already exposed to all of this stuff, that we don't already have the news coming into our, you know, the supercomputer in our pocket. Uh, I, I think that I think it's sort of wrong headed on on both approaches, both infantilizes uh gen Z assumes we're not ready, um but also assumes that we're not we're not checked in in the first place, which I actually think we many of us already are whether whether or not we're voting or not we are already politically checked in
0: Yeah, no, it makes sense, I think intermittently and incrementally, sure, young people should have the right to vote because I can't you know I'm not going to propose everybody, you know, every 16, 17 year old should vote. But I think starting, you know, having a sure. gradual understanding of how the benefits can, can, um, can arrive, sure. uh, will, will help, will help in the, in the long run. Um, really? yeah. But let's talk about Georgia. Cause this is a heavy and dense question. Sure. Um, Georgia, Texas, we see voter restrictions, voter suppression. I mean, yeah. like I said, I'm a poll worker and if I was a nonpartisan poll worker in Georgia, and I tried to give somebody a water bottle, I could be imprisoned yes. for up to five years with heavy fines. Yes. So, what are your thoughts on what's happening in Georgia? You've obviously been down there, worked for Stacey Abrams, who runs Fair Fight now. You know, again, yeah. shout out to her. Please, please come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I know Zach would love to watch that. Episode. Uh, I
1: would. That would be great. Uh,
0: but kind of discuss, you know, what you think is happening there. And what we should be doing you know from an outside perspective, um, and how young people should be reacting
1: absolutely it's to me, I think this issue and how we respond to it is really going to be sort of definitive uh, of of this of this era politically you know despite all of the you know other legislative proposals, achievements, perhaps you could say um, of the current administration. How, how we respond collectively to sort of the challenge of, of voting rights, the challenge of voter suppression, the urgency of this issue, I think will really, will really define us and really will be how this, this period of time um, is remembered. What you are seeing, I think, now uh, has been brewing for a while. This is not a new phenomenon. The history major in me has to share, uh, you know, that, that voter suppression and distortions of the electorate, distortions of democracy is one of the sort of the oldest tricks in the book. Um, You know, almost as soon as the 15th Amendment is ratified in 1870, uh, there are efforts to distort or or subvert Black political power um, across, the former Confederate states through a variety of mechanisms that on their face look racially neutral. Uh, A literacy literacy test, a poll tax, a grandfather clause, all of these things sort of look or have the semblance of appearing racially neutral, but of course, you know, take an absolute sledgehammer to Black political power um, at the end of Reconstruction. Then you have sort of the, the, the crowning achievement of the civil rights movement, which is which is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The VRA really is, is the, the, the gem, you know, the centerpiece of, of all the civil rights legislation. Um, and you, what you've seen is it be really, really successful until it started to get gradually weakened uh, by the Supreme Court. And I think critically, um, what we are seeing now is sort of the most extreme uh, most brazen, most out in the open period of voter suppression. But what I just want to emphasize is it's not a new phenomenon. I think this has really been, there's really been going on since, you know, since 1865, 1870. Um, but then really got, got breathed new life, um, yeah. by, by two, by two important events. One, uh, was obviously in 2013 the Supreme court decision in Shelby County versus Holder. Mm. One of the most, in my thinking, one of the most disastrous Supreme court decisions in a long time, uh, Basically, rendered a critical provision of the VRA, Section Five, um, effectively uh, useless in, a, in its original form and its most powerful form. Section Five uh, had a provision called preclearance, wherein states that had a history of discrimination in voting—many of those former Confederate states, but not entirely in the South, but but almost all in the South—had uh, to submit any proposed voting changes to the Department of Justice for review and approval before it went to, into effect. This basically kept the urge of voter suppression, the urge of racially racially biased uh, manipulations of the electorate, in check for a long time, until Chief Justice John Roberts said that we don't need it anymore. That you know the civil rights act, the civil rights movement is over. The the new South is here. You know that the South doesn't want to do that anymore. The situation on the ground has changed. Therefore, Section Five targets these states sort of unfairly. It's an unfair kind of targeting of, of the South for. What they did historically, but what is not actually that real, relevant in, in, in the present moment. That was a really disastrous decision, uh, striking down the formula whereby, whereby Section 5 could, could actually come into play. Since then, we have seen an explosion of voter suppression since 2013 um, in many of those former Confederate states, but is now you know, spreading into a, a national phenomenon. States that have really pioneered voter suppression also include states like Wisconsin, uh, you know, a, a real, real master um, of, of voter suppression of gerrymandering um, you know, really not not what i mean to say is not just the south uh, anymore and i think the other real event that is, has that is sort of kicked this voter suppression drive into overdrive uh was obviously the 2020 um election having um the trump the trump administration lose the election having joe biden win with record turnout a broad and multi-racial cross-class coalition across a variety of states um winning a state like georgia uh, you know, and, and those two senators in Georgia, um, and all of Trump's rhetoric about the election was rigged, it was stolen from us, all of that has just given poured gasoline onto the voter suppression fire. Um, and so now you're seeing really you know, militant, serious, very concerning efforts across the country um, to restrict access to the ballot, to restrict early voting, uh, to, to sort of bring back in more draconian voter ID requirements. Um, we're about to go into a redistricting cycle and, you know, the state legislatures um, are really, you know, it's not looking very good for, um, you know, the hope of nonpartisan uh, redistricting. It's going to look like an incredibly surgical gerrymandering uh, map for the next 10 years. And so this is really an urgent moment. I mean, this is truly, uh, I think, it's sort of make or break for um not only the issues that that I care about that I think the Biden administration is trying to get through, um, whether or not we can kind of overcome the hurdles of redistricting of voter suppression um, of a filibuster, uh, but really for the the health and vitality of of our democracy. We are seeing all across the world, real erosion, real skepticism regarding democracy, regarding the possibility of people governing themselves um, and having self-governing institutions. Uh, And I really think we are moving down a really kind of dangerous path in this country towards what really looks like minority rule, rule by the ideological, the partisan minority, uh, because their rule is so entrenched um, and so insulated from the democratic will through things like extreme gerrymandering, through things like voter suppression that is sort of running rampant, um, that we really are on the precipice of of real minority rule. uh, And on what is, I think, increasingly a concern, sort of a separate concern about voter suppression that I always come back to, is so many people are really, really concerned about sort of an ext- extreme extremism within our politics a tribalism. No one's talking to each other anymore. Everybody hates each other. Everybody's yelling. The temperature of our politics are really high. Things are really, really intense. And I think what, uh, one of the drivers of that has to be distortions of the electorate, distortions of democracy. If I have a, if I have a member of Congress and I know that my district is completely gerrymandered so that I, there is literally no way that I could lose. I have full license to drift toward the ideological extreme on either side. I could drift toward the extreme left just as I could drift towards the extreme right. And it is literally demogra- democratically impossible for anyone to hold me accountable. So no wonder nobody in Congress talks to each other. No wonder you have extreme ideologues in Congress uh, representing views that are really, really kind of niche and you know minority views. Uh, in Congress and that are now getting sort of this mainstream platform because their power is so insulated and so protected from the will of the Democratic voters on the ground that they can just kind of drift wherever they want to and take positions that are so out of step with not only the majority of the country, but the majority of their voters kind of on the ground if a district was drawn fairly, if everybody was empowered and fully able to participate uh, politically. So I think if we are to lower the temperature of our politics, if we are to bring more bipartisan consensus back into politics in Washington, at the state level. Voter suppression and gerrymandering have to be sort of front of the agenda. Otherwise, there is no you know, there's no way you can bring sort of the the sort of drifting extremes uh, back towards another when when they're when they're insulated when they're basically protected. Their power is protected. Uh, and they they have no incentive to to talk to talk across the aisle, reach across the aisle, make consensus. So that's another that's sort of another urgent concern. I think so many of the concerns we have are, are ineffectiveness, our gridlock, the temperature of our politics. If we don't get serious about democracy reform, those things will continue, and I think will sadly will get will get worse with time. Mm-hmm. Real
0: question is when are you running for office?
1: This is a question I, I, I get, and I think what, what, I, what I think you know comes up for me, um, actually, I have, a, I have a very good family friend of mine, actually, now that I think about it, I'm going to recommend him to come on this podcast, um, who's a state senator um, in Iowa. Um, he actually was recently elected for the, uh, the chair of uh, Iowa Dems in, in the state senate. Um, and I remember when, when, you know, during the primary, everybody who went to Iowa would, would, would meet with him. His social media was basically just a catalog of every major Democratic presidential candidate, like, ha- taking him out for coffee. It was very cool. Uh, but he's a, he's a family friend of mine. And he always, whenever I picked his brain about running for office, always talked about, um, you really have to have a clear idea in mind who you are running to serve, the constituents that you want to speak for and represent, or I hope to speak for and represent in public service, um, and you really have to be sure and sort of concretely sure that running for, for office, public service in that way um, is sort of the only way that you can, you can address the issues you care about. You can represent the constituencies that you want to represent. Those are sort of questions you have to ask yourself if before you're gonna run for office. Is this, is this really the only way I can, I can make a move on the, on the issues I care about or speak for the, represent, speak for the constituencies I care about? Uh, and what are those constituencies that I hope to go and, and serve? I think for me, I I have not yet answered those questions. I think for me right now, at this point in my life, at this point in my career, you know, pre-law school, pre-graduate school, pre-first job even, I haven't even started my first job yet. uh, I think for me, I'm not yet sure that running for office is the only way I can see myself making a difference on the issues that really resonate for me. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, being a career civil rights lawyer at the NAACP, at the ACLU, at the Lawyers Committee, would be incredibly fulfilling and incredibly sustaining. Going to work for the Department of Justice, working for Democrats on the Hill, on the Judiciary Committee. I think there are a lot of ways I feel like right now that I can get involved, I can be politically engaged, and I can sort of push the needle on the issues that really resonate for me uh, that don't include running for office. Um, with that said, it's still kind of something I think about. It is something that is on my mind, um, but I would really have to be more clear about what are the constituencies and what are the issues that i want to run on and who i want to sort of run for who i want to really be in public service to serve um and then i have to be really much more clear about is is this really the only avenue um that i foresee being able to really make a difference on on those issues that i I care about at this point in my career i'm still kind of open to wherever the wind blows and wherever wherever i can get involved um, on those issues that really resonate um running is certainly an idea it's certainly on the table but um, I think for right now, I, I really want to sort of be the best legal assistant, the best, you know, aspiring civil rights attorney uh, that, I, that I can be.
0: Mm. It was a yes or no question, by the way. Uh,
1: Sorry, I into to talk about philosophical. <laughs> no, no, there. no,
0: no, no, no. You got, a
1: little, you got a little insight into my sort of my thinking about it. But um, it is, look, it's something I... I You'd be surprised how often I get that question. So so yeah. I just it's something that I have you'd,
0: had. Be, you'd be surprised how often I get that question.
1: <laughs> I think I think I think you absolutely I, I I can't I can imagine why. I totally can imagine
0: why. Um, you know, before I address your response to, to my last question, I just wanted to ask you this first because something that when I um, when I speak with candidates in my area, folks who are going, if elected, going to directly impact what I do. Yeah. Um, how i do it and where their power lies is having a an understanding that even in major um major cases and this is something i tell everybody i don't care at the at the local level at the most local you can get i don't care if you're a democrat i don't care if you're a republican the extremism like you said the gridlock it it, i'm really way past that because at a certain point we look at that and i say well that's bs you know like you know when you play that game bs like i'm calling bs right there like that's just a scapegoat folks use so that like you said they don't have to talk to each other you know um and and have and have a real conversation but what i do tell people is as long as you're for the community you know i and i work across the aisle all the time although i have roots in, in democratic establishments I work across the as long as you're working for a community like like I think your 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 Iowa friend was saying, as long as you have a the best understanding you possibly can have because you spent time with those folks. And you understand what the community service is that you want to accomplish, and how it parallels with what they want you to do. If you can can, you know, have that down and you know put that checkbox in your resume, then run for office. You know, and run for office. Because I, I, then at that point, even if I am diametrically opposed to what you believe in, I can respect you. Sure. You know what I mean? And that's sure. what I think what the political system lacks is people do what they want to do because they want to do it and not because what others believe they should do. Right. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I could be philosophical too. Uh, but just to just to address what you said before, I really like the historical avenue. One thing I would add, because I've studied history for multiple years, Good. You know, yeah. five on a push.
1: OK, no, that's that's obviously the best thing, the best thing I've heard.
0: Exactly. I'm qualified to say these things. No, but um, I, you know, something Patrick brought up and, you know, shout out to Patrick uh, Cornell votes, um, is that in the Constitution, in the original, you know, adaptation of the Constitution, not a single, you know, there's not a single reference to to, to the right to vote, or voting rights in general. Um, and, and something I would like to add is, no matter how democratic, you know, we believe in our current society 250 years after, you know, this, this Republic was established, is how democratic our ideals actually were then, Sure. how much we've evolved to now. Um, sure, sure. And so I think voting rights just to end off is the most critical issue there has ever been in United States history. Um, because like we said, where we, where we started and where we are now, completely different, but very reminiscent because in my opinion, we've been dealing with that issue since, you know, you know, Thomas Jefferson and and James Madison got it up together and said, Hey, let's write a constitution and the bill of rights. You know what I mean? Um, but yes, no, thank, thank you for your input. I think, I think, uh, is really interesting to hear from, from, from a lawyer or almost a pre-lawyer perspective on, on what he thinks is going on. But just in closing, sure. I would like to ask, what is your advice to my generation? Gen Z, again, I don't know where they got Z from. I would like it if it was just like Gen A, B, C, you know, like just follow the alphabet. Yeah. Or Z, they just took a letter. They're like, you know, Z sounds cool. Um, but what is your advice to us? when it comes to voting elections uh, college you know wanting to be engaged you know fear to be engaged totally ignorant what would you tell us as a bunch holistically
1: yeah it's it's a it's a great question i think for me you know what has been really important is sort of to have sort of a, the wherewithal and the perspective to notice Where the gaps might be on on the issues that really matter to you. The the most important experience, the birth of Columbia Votes as an idea, as an institution, was recognizing that amidst a a crowded ecosystem of organizations doing kind of similar stuff, actually registering students to vote was really falling through the cracks. Noticing that, noticing that gap, that cleavage in, in the infrastructure. Um, really kind of inspired the rest of my college journey. I mean, it was really kind of a pivotal moment for me in my my journey uh, in college. Um, And I think if there is an issue that you really care about, the first piece of advice is, is, is get involved, find wherever and however you can get involved, any issue that even touch any organization or any sort of student group or anything that sort of touches that issue, you know, get involved, sort of hear what they have to say, check in with them, but then also sort of have the critical distance Um, even as you sort of dive in politically or or organizationally institutionally have enough critical distance and wherewithal to notice okay what what more can we be doing how can I link this organization that I really care about with this organization that I really care about that should be talking but maybe they're not how can I be the bridge between various issues between various organizations because I think the thing that is so often sort of overlooked at least um, in thinking about politics and thinking about law and especially civil rights is that so often these issues are treated sort of separately. Like you can be a housing lawyer, you can be a voting rights lawyer, you can be a criminal justice lawyer, you can be all these, those are just lawyers, those are just civil rights. Any one of those issues, housing, voting rights, criminal justice, education, economic justice, any of them can be the sort of intersecting point. You can sub in any of those as the middle and it'll still make sense, it'll still function. But so often, they are really treated as sort of independent silos. People get very specific and very kind of uh, siloed away from each other. And there's often not the kind of dialogue and communication across issue, cross organization that, that might be needed. So as you dive in, as you get engaged, have the critical distance to notice where those connections can be built, how to sort of draw in disparate groups together sort of around a common goal or around a common interest, and don't be afraid to step up to the plate and be that intersecting link. Be, you know, bring the two student organizations together. Bring an administrator on board. Get your favorite professor on board. Like, be that intersecting link. Be that nexus point, because these issues are a lot closer than often they appear. They appear really disparate and really separate, but often they're a lot closer uh, than, than they appear. Um, And I think, I think that that is really sort of some of the advice that I would give as as you get involved as you dive in you dive in with both feet get get as involved as you can whatever resonates with you. Um, And as you get involved, you'll figure out what actually resonates with you. Uh, But then don't be afraid to sort of to bring disparate groups together to really create coalitions to create, you know, cross group dialogue cross group advocacy, Um, because I think that's actually when we are at our most Uh, Effective when we realize that our that our respective issue areas, our respective passions or commitments, are actually much closer together and much less far apart uh, than than we might have thought.
0: Yeah, no, I could believe it. The intersection of everything is everything. Yep. Um, I. I, Somebody needs to put that on a cat poster, and (laughs) put it above like a bathroom or something um yeah no that that was that was really great um how can just as we close out how can people stay updated on you yourself what you do you want to link your twitter or something
1: yeah feel free uh i'm I'm a little new to the twitter thing but i'm trying to get like more of a more of a political following um it's at zachary Z a c h a r y underscore kimmel K a m m e l. also feel free to follow uh, the lawyers committee for civil rights if you are interested in civil rights in social justice um in law you know the prominent civil rights organization in the country. It's at lawyers com on Twitter. Um, I'll be working in the criminal justice project. Also, feel free to email me if anyone watching this has a question about about civil rights, about Columbia, about law school, about the lawyers committee, about internships. Um, my email is zachary a kimmel. I'm, sure, oh, I'm sure I'm sure you can you can link that. Uh, feel free to get in touch with me. Happy to talk um, about about civil rights, about law school, about you know, sort of any anything that anything of interest. Uh, just happy to happy for people to, to stay in involved and would love to sort of bring forward the next the next crop the next generation uh sort of coming behind me
0: yeah no of course and if the lawyers committee can follow me back that'd be great i
1: will i'll talk i'll touch base with them uh, we'll work something out don't worry exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll try to pull a string yeah, or two exactly. <laughs> uh, uh and
0: if not i can pull a couple strings uh, <laughs> sure. and is there anything you'd like to add before we log off
1: no, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm grateful to, to, to you for doing this. I think this is really uh, amazing. And I hope, I hope, you know, the viewers are, are inspired to, you know, to get there, get their shoes on, get it, grab a clipboard, get involved, like wherever you can, whatever community you're a part of because uh, Because we need you, and this I think the issues that that are on the table now are 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 so urgent that we need really all all hands on deck if we 're going to sort of meet the the urgency of of this moment so even if you're if you 're watching this and you sort of make one phone call or make one donation that 's still getting involved um, so I'm, I'm I'm grateful to be a part of this i 'm glad that you brought me on and i hope hope somebody out there was was inspired by this
0: of course, I think they will be um. So, yes, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank so much. Uh,
0: and anytime you want to come back, bring bring folks from the lawyers committee, talk about the issues that matter to you and what you're working on. We'd be happy to have you back on. Um, Amazing. It's actually been meaning to get a multiple kind of, you know, kind of interview, multi-led. It's in the works. I'm
1: working sure. on it. Sure, cool. I'll, I'll stay tuned. Exactly.
0: So, yeah, no, stay tuned, please. Um, like and subscribe new content coming out soon. But yes, thank you so much, Zach. Um, And yeah, I'll catch you on the flip. Thank you so much. Take it easy. You too. Peace.